You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 64. And today we're asking the question, what is the full story about just culture? Part one, let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we normally ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But now we're up to episode 64, we're experimenting more with breaking this formula just a little bit. And um, following our review of Safety 1 and Safety 2, Eric Holnagel's book, um, a couple of episodes ago, we're going to do a slightly longer piece of work. And this week, next week, and, and maybe the week after, we're going to look at the idea of just culture and focusing mainly on Sidney Decker's book of the same name. So Drew, this was your idea after our work with Safety 1 and Safety 2. Do you want to explain the background to the question and the just culture topic? Thanks, David. I guess the best place to start is to say that even though if you search for just culture, Sidney Decker's name and Sidney Decker's book comes up, he is not the person who invented the idea and doesn't have any sort of ownership over the field. So let's go right back. In the early days of safety, safety laws are essentially all about worker protection. So the idea is that there are laws that protect the workers directly from having unsafe conditions and say that people need to look after their workers. But most of the focus is actually on providing compensation if people do get hurt. So some of the early laws are all about uh, setting up conditions, insurance companies, sometimes state-run, sometimes state-mandated, so that if a business injures a worker, then at least the worker gets paid out or their family gets paid out. But the unintended effect of that is that they encourage businesses to manage liability instead of managing safety. Because if you're going to be a like cold-hearted business point of view, either you keep the worker safe or you simply avoid making a payout by blaming the worker and saying it's not your fault, it's their fault that they got injured. Either way, you don't have to pay out. And so that actually fits in really well with a lot of safety science but it fits in really poorly with more modern safety science. So it's probably why Heinrich's ideas about preventing accidents become more and more interpreted as preventing unsafe acts, because that sort of focus is very much fitting in with the idea that if you can blame the worker for the act, you don't have to pay out compensation. And it's also probably why punishment-focused ideas of behavioural safety became popular. You can do positive rewards, but ultimately that system is very consistent with also punishing people if they cause an accident. So if you believe that accidents are mainly caused by unsafe acts by people, and you believe that you can prevent those unsafe acts through reward and punishment, then there's no cognitive dissonance between your positive safety scheme and your way of treating people after an accident. But the trouble is that as you start to move towards a more design and system understanding of how accidents are caused, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to blame individuals. So from the late 80s to the early 90s, there's this movement towards no blame incident reporting and accident investigation processes. David, I don't know how much you were around for that movement. It was very popular in some industries and very unpopular in others. Yeah, I think I never really saw it, I think, Drew, done, I suppose, as spoken about or, or maybe as intended. It, it, there was a lot of talk about no blame. Um, when I started in safety, because it was right on that pivoting point, mid-90s and into the early 2000s, and there was a lot of push on safety culture. And most of the theorists at the time 
so Decker in 2007, but Professor Andrew Hopkins was writing about reporting cultures and there's a lot of discussion about open cultures. And, and so it was sort of like there was this big movement where everyone knew what they possibly should be doing, but I really didn't see a lot of organisations do very much practically with it, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, David, because this was the big problem is that the safety theory makes sense and the safety theory moves you towards no blame. But there's a massive dissonance between that and all of the practical concerns about how you manage safety in a business. So theory says no blame works, no blame increases reporting, no blame fits in with the fact that problems are ultimately caused by designs and systems and that individual behaviours are just symptoms. But the regulations still need to place the blame somewhere. And if you can't blame the workers, that's a confession that it's the company's fault. And you're basically admitting that you as a company are guilty. Uh, you're faced with compensation and insurance schemes where your premiums go up if the organisation is responsible for an accident. You're faced with education in safety and accident investigation processes that typically haven't yet embraced the new science. And so you're being trained in processes that don't fit with that way of thinking either. You know, it's one thing to have this sort of idealistic idea of no blame, but no one is giving you a process that leads to no blame. Most of the processes involve varying degrees of culpability. So with all of that, we've got this need for a way of resolving the tension between safety theory and safety practice. And I think, Drew, we have seen these cycles. As I was thinking about this episode, even in the last couple of years, we had this wave of just culture. Um, the second edition of the Just Culture book was 2012. Between 2012, 2015, we saw this sort of increasing um, discussion in business about these, you know, just cultures and open cultures and no blame cultures. And then we saw this sort of wave come back, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. There was lots of new legislation, Health and Safety at Work Act in New Zealand in 2015. There was the um, the industrial manslaughter throughout Australia over the last two years. And I know a lot of criminalization of, of you know, human error in certain jurisdictions around the world as well. And that's all that's sort of reinvigorated this pressure back on protecting managers, directors, and companies at the kind of, at the cost of, you know, starting to increase the pressure to reassign that blame back to the people involved in incidents. So the idea of just culture is that it's providing a theoretical solution to this problem of the tension between no blame on one hand and systemic pressures to blame individuals. The most cynical way of looking at that is it gives you a scientific excuse to start blaming individuals again. But I don't think we need to be that cynical. I think it's fair enough to just recognise that we have this irreconcilable pressure. And so in this no-blame environment, where it's sort of catching on as a theory, but people are struggling with it in practice, it comes a book by James Reason called Managing the Risks of Organisational Accidents. I should point out that this isn't a book about safety culture. It's a very wide-ranging book about organisational safety issues. It's mainly actually about system thinking and moving away from blaming individuals. It's got one chapter which is on safety culture. That chapter is subdivided into different components of safety culture. And only one of those components is this idea of a just culture. So according to reason, a just culture is sort of one of the four attributes of an overall good safety culture. So the whole idea of safety culture is really a bit like the Swiss cheese model. Uh, James Reason started it, but it's not his fault that one subsection of one chapter of one book got blown all out of proportion. And as we're going to see, it's even worse than that, because it's mostly one diagram again, which has been picked up and people have run with it. So if you go back to this section of the book, 
Reason starts off by saying that all of the rest of the things he says about a system's approach to safety say that we shouldn't blame individuals. He says, you know, almost never is it appropriate or the right thing to do or useful to blame an individual. But there are these rare occasions where someone is obviously negligent or even malevolent. A few truly bad behaviours against, and this is quoting directly, the vast majority of cases where the attribution of blame is neither appropriate nor useful. So Reason's trying to work out how do we deal with these small number of cases? And he says the most important thing is draw a line between the bad behaviours and everything else. Because if people know what is absolutely bad, then they'll feel safe to talk about everything else. You can have open conversations, you can have clear reporting, no one needs to worry about being blamed because they know where the line is. But then as he goes through the section, he talks himself and his readers through this set of steps about how you draw the line. And it gets worse and worse. And it ends up with this decision tree diagram that asks a series of questions. It starts off, you know, were the actions intended? If they're intended, then it's obviously bad. Was there substance abuse involved? Well, if there's substance abuse and you meant to do it, that's definitely really bad. If it's medically prescribed, that's sort of bad. Did you knowingly violate safe operating procedures? Well, if the procedures were reasonably clear and you did, that's very bad. If there's some ambiguity, then it's still bad, but not so bad. And so this is the reason culpability framework. Ultimately, you know, how culpable should you be? There are nine possible outcomes, and only one of those nine outcomes is blameless error. So we've gone from how do we have a system where we are mostly blame-free and still, still deal with the truly bad behaviours, to a classification system where you're basically a suspect going through a series of tests, and if you give the wrong answer to any one of those tests, then you get blamed. And only if you make it through every single test do you come out totally blameless. I think, Drew, that, um, that I suppose we see that in safety through these models over the years about this guilty until proven innocent, and, and I suppose the model does that. But I just, I just want to throw back, if people don't have a copy of Managing the Risks of Organisational Accidents by James Reason, it's well worth a read because of all of the ideas like this. Like there's even a, a two-pager on um, you know, setting safety targets about you know, not bothering to measure the things that you can't manage, like you know, negative lost time injuries and that. So there's, for example, there's, there's lots and lots of ideas in that book by Jim Reason from the late 90s that people might recognise a number of things that you know, we're still grappling with today that he talked about at the time. But this culpability framework that you mentioned, Drew, I mean, I've seen countless examples of this diagram and this flowchart and these questions in organisations that purport to have a just culture because they have this, this diagram where a HR manager and a manager and a safety investigator sit down either part of or at the end of an investigation and go, right, what do we need to do about the people involved? And they call that their their just culture. But you know, maybe it is in the way that Reason described it, but it's very not a just culture in the way that Sidney Decker describes it. Yes, very true. So th there's one sort of final bit of history that I want to throw in, which is a thing, uh, well, I should say Reason's ideas, mostly not about this just culture. It really is just a sort of niche thing that he talks about. And he's pontificating sort of well beyond where his original starting position was. But this, particularly this diagram, got picked up by David Marks in healthcare, who doubled down on this idea that just culture is really about establishing clear lines between three categories. You've got innocent error. You've got things in the middle where maybe you should have known better, but maybe it can be excused by system factors. And then you've got deliberate harm. 
and you've got a classification process for working out what you should have known about or should have reasonably done. And a large part of this logic is a thing called the substitution test, where you work out what someone should have done by saying, you actually go and ask other people, would you in the same circumstances do the same thing? And now listeners who are familiar with our episodes about hindsight bias, particularly the episode about the Dreamworld accident, would know that the trouble with this is it's impossible to put yourself in the shoes of someone in the past because you already know what the outcome is. You've got information that they didn't have and it's not like you can magically forget that you know that in order to work out what you would have done. So this sort of test makes it really seem like you're being fair, like you're trying to put yourself in their shoes, but in fact what you're doing is you're building a process that encourages the use of hindsight bias. Andrew, my understanding of the literature that's that's studied some of this, um, particularly in healthcare settings, but also in aviation settings, to try to understand this overconfidence bias of individuals. I know um, or I recall a study where nurses were asked if they thought that they might make the same sort of drug misadministration error that another nurse had made when the situation was described. And participants almost always strongly believed and argued that they would never possibly make that mistake of the wrong dose or the wrong type of drug, even when all of the circumstances around the particular situation and the, the messiness and the difficulties were explained to them. They always felt that they are a professional practitioner that would never make that mistake. And we, we've gone beyond this, David. There, there are studies that show what are the actual rates of people making mistakes in these circumstances. And these mistakes that people are confident that they would never make, people routinely make. Um, so you ask people sort of how confident they are, compare that to statistics. And that, that's just a constant problem in hindsight bias is that we can't go back and say, based on these circumstances, what would we have done? Or based on these circumstances, what would a reasonable person have done? Um, it's unfortunate because the legal system, and if we're talking about you know justice, the legal system does actually require that as a test, as part of the test for negligence, but it's literally impossible to do. So Drew, we've you've explained, you've done a great job of explaining the history there and where some of these ideas come from, sort of going back 25 years and and even some of the challenges long before that in in safety. But the book we're going to focus on is the book by the by the title Just Culture by Sydney Decker. Now, there's three editions, um, 2007, 2012, and most recently, the third edition in 2018. We are going to be working from the third edition, but Drew, I admitted to you just before this that um, I only had a copy of the second edition on my bookshelf. So I've ordered the third edition from Amazon, which will arrive tomorrow. So I had to work off a combination of my second edition and uh, and Google Docs um, preview for the introduction today. So I'm going to rely on you a little bit for any nuances in the second and the third edition. So, so it is, in fact, the second edition that I read last and that I've used to teach classes with before. Uh, the biggest change to the third edition is it includes a lot more of Decker's thinking about restorative justice. And I think that's reflected in the title. The second edition is subtitled Balancing Trust and Accountability. And then the third edition is called Restoring Trust and Accountability in Your Organisation. Uh, which sort of shows the subtle shift of ideas. Andrew, I think sometimes I was quite surprised when I looked at it and and I suppose credit to Sydney for this. Sometimes there's between second editions and third editions or even between any editions of a book, there's subtle differences, but it appears between the second and third edition, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it because it appears as though there's quite some significant changes to content and structure and and and, and, and even expansion of ideas between sort of you know, 2012 and 2018 for Sydney. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting because 2014 is when I first personally knew Sid. 
And so I was working with him between the years of 2014 and 2018. So I got to be part of some conversations where I'm sort of hearing some of those ideas start to develop. That's also the period when we were teaching our critical perspectives on safety and safety ethics and accountability courses at Griffith as part of the graduate certificate. I don't know how many of our old students we have listening, but I know that one of the exercises Sid got people to do was to write a just culture policy for their organisation. And I know that that wasn't just assessment. Sid was constantly being sort of challenged and improving his own thinking from what everyone said about what they would do to try to improve just culture in their own organisation. So he had all of that feedback over those years. So Drew, we're going to start with you know the introduction in the book. Like we said, we'll, we'll, we'll go over a couple of episodes because we think there's a lot of really important and relevant you know, information on just culture that's going to be useful for our listeners in their organization. So do you want to talk about sort of the start of the book, how the book opens up and how the book starts to describe this concept of just culture? Uh, I guess the first thing I should say is that first thing I said about Safety 1 and Safety 2 was there is no preface, hooray. Uh, first thing to say about this book is there is a preface and it is very dense in information content. This is not a vague, oh, I was once thinking about this and this is how I came to write the book. The preface really is an outline of the key ideas and arguments in the book. Um, so you can't skip it. I also remember saying about Safety 1 and Safety 2, there's no actual definition of Safety 2 in this entire book. And so I was pleased that the first part of the preface here is a definition of just culture. So it starts off, just culture is a culture of trust, learning and accountability. It explains that it's particularly relevant to how you respond when something goes wrong. Every organization, when something goes wrong, they want to minimize the negative impact and they want to maximize learning. And Decker also points out that there's a close tie between that and how people have the confidence to report when things go wrong, because people only report when they know they'll be treated fairly. So Drew, this isn't a very controversial definition. I think we'd all say that, okay, trust, learning, accountability, they're things that are that are good and and we want to learn when something goes wrong and we want to make sure that we've got all of the conditions in place in the organization for us to learn. But it does, I suppose, set up the rest of the book to really be um, challenging and questioning how we might go about achieving this just culture because it's one of those things that's very easy to say, yes, that's good, we want that, but um, it's another thing to make it happen in institutional settings. Yes, I think it would be fair to say that when most people say that they have a just culture, what they're talking about is they have a process called a just culture process or a policy called a just culture policy. And I think that's the sort of first very important lesson to take from this is that a just culture is something that we aim towards. It's not something that we achieve by having a process. And then we've always got to be asking ourselves, are our processes and practices leading us towards a just culture? Or are they failing to do that? And one of the big questions is whether people actually feel that they're being treated justly in that process. And so, Drew, I think those processes in organisations, I think Sydney's characterisation of those existing approaches to, to just culture is that most companies just ask what rule was broken or, or who, did, who did something that was wrong and how bad was it and therefore what consequence um, you know, should, we, should we take in relation to, to those people? So, you know, what did they do? Who was it? And, and what do we need to do about it um, in, in relation to the individual? We both know that Decker has a bit of a problem, not a problem, a bit of a habit of being pretty harsh about how he characterizes some of the older safety practices. Do you think describing people's process like that as you, which role was broken, who's responsible, how bad is it? Do you think that's a sort of fair characterization about what companies actually do in the wake of an accident? 
I think it's not something that companies would say, yes, that's what we do. Uh, I think a lot of managers particularly would say, no, 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 we don't do that. We're always looking for, you know, organizational factors. We're always trying to understand what happened as well as the individual, you know, look at the individual um, actions as well as what the organizational factors and we're trying to generate learnings. But I think it would be very interesting to then ask a lot of workers, because I think if you asked a lot of workers, they wouldn't say the same answers as as management. And that's one of the other things that Sydney says is obviously that um, the people with more power in an organization think that the culture is more just than the people with less less power. So that's definitely what we find. We do some work helping companies try to reorientate their investigation processes when they say that they want to do, but they want to learn more. And, you know, when we look at their processes, their reports, and we speak to the people, you know, in frontline supervisory roles or, or frontline work roles, um, they're definitely experiencing a different investigation process than what their organizations think that they're actually conducting. I think that once he has handed in his thesis in a couple of months, we really need to get uh, Derek Hegarty onto the podcast. He's been doing some pretty deep embedded ethnography with just culture processes. And it always shocks me how stereotypical his real world findings are. That, you know, some of the real stuff that happens in construction projects, it's almost like class warfare once they start investigating an incident, how quickly people get blamed and sidelined and don't have their stories heard. Yeah, and we hear that now in organisations, Drew, when you talk to frontline workers, you'll say, oh, you know, what do you think of the accident investigation process or, you know, the recent or whatever? They go, oh, that's just the thing that the organisation does before it blames us. And and so you'll you'll hear these 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 narratives, which it's, it is almost like the stereotypical narratives that, you know, a, a quote that Sydney might put in one of his books, but, you know, it's real and it's in organisations today. But it's hard to know whether these narratives are a reflection of what's happening now in 2020 or 2021 or narratives that people have formed views of over their entire working career. So it's, um, it's, like, the, it's like the episode we did, I think, episode 34 on institutional logics, Drew. It, it, it's just hard to know how stable and enduring some of these logics are, for, particularly for people who've been in organisations or doing roles for you know a, a longer period of time. So, David, the one thing I would suggest for our listeners who are working for more progressive organisations, or who at least think that this is a bit too much of a stereotype, is have a look at some of your own investigations, and in particular note how even apparently very open investigations, they tend to backtrack from the accident. So some of the earliest facts that they discover are to do with broken rules or incorrect behaviours. And even if the investigation fans out from there or moves on or starts considering systemic factors, these sorts of investigations are still left in that process with the broken rules. They're still sitting somewhere in the trace of the investigation. And so there's still very much this risk that the just culture approach will start to be applied, focusing on trying to classify those broken rules based on the other findings from the investigation. And so there's, for the workers, there's still very much this risk that their actions are going to be judged based on whether they were reasonable things to do or honest mistakes or blameless errors. So, Drew, I, I think we're, we're sort of aligned in the things that we've sort of, we read in the book, the things that we've, we've seen in, in organisations. But then Decker makes some fairly strong factual claims in the preface. So I just might mention a couple of these and get your perspective on them as well. He sort of says that like I mentioned a little bit before, that just culture processes in organisations favour those who already have the power, that dividing human error up into different categories is, isn't is appropriate or useful, and that when there's any form of punishment, this is mutually exclusive with learning. So he sort of says those three things, that 
you know, people who have the power, you know, get get the say and that's not very just and and so on. You know, people categorize things. Usually the people with the power assign the categories and then get the get the decision to make about whether people get punished and and therefore um, restrict learning. We're going to be going into each of these as we go through the book, but I'll just give you my initial impressions now, if that suits David. The first one that the process tends to favour those who already have power, I think, is self-evident. The most important decision in a just culture process is who you are applying the process to, whose actions you are judging. And we see constantly in, whether it's royal commissions, official accident reports, internal company investigations, the part of the organisation responsible for writing the report is very seldom the one who even submits their own actions as things that are relevant to the accident. Um, If we were being totally open and fair, then a relevant factor in every investigation would be how did the safety department go about investigating the last accident like this? And why did we fail to stop the next one? Um, But we very seldom sort of reach back that far. Um, The first thing that any regulator should be looking at is how did we as a regulator fail to stop this happening? Whereas regulators very often, a regulator has been known to hide their own actions to avoid compromising prosecutions. So the process is only going to get applied to the people who don't have power. The dividing human error up into different categories, I think, is really interesting because the categories come from reason's own attempts to understand how humans make different types of mistakes. And we've already talked in the episode about Swiss cheese, about how this is like a fascinating study is, you know, how is the human brain so fallible? And how is it fallible in so many different ways through different mechanisms? I personally think that that is very interesting and very useful. Just when it comes to working out how an accident's happened, not so much. You're never going to fix the facts of human psychology through an accident investigation. And I think human error, human error classification systems have tried for a long time to create these categories like you know, knowledge, skill, and rule-based errors. And there's there's different models of trying to actually look at, at types of errors. And I suppose it's, you know, categorization of errors might help because if you have, you know, common types of errors, then you might be able to come up with solutions for these these common types of errors. Even as Sidney says in his book, when he talks about the different ways of explaining certain actions, he goes, if you can explain them in certain way, then you know that you've got um, different countermeasures for those different explanations. So I think Categories, look, it, it doesn't really serve a purpose because knowing what category a human error falls in doesn't actually tell you more about that individual error or situation. But maybe in the bigger scheme of things in terms of the broader approach to organisational safety, maybe having some categories and some generalizable um, hypotheses is, is helpful. When it comes to appropriate, I, I think this is the bit that people find intuitively very powerful is that, you know, of course, if you deliberately do something, that's worse than if you do it accidentally. And if you deliberately intend a harmful outcome, then absolutely, of course, you should be culpable for the action. Uh, So I understand why that makes sense to people. But one thing that Decker points out later in the book is that the normal place we apply these sorts of tests is in a criminal court. And in a criminal court, we have a very different uh, burden of proof And we have the ability to mount an independent defence against all of these claims and accusations about what was reasonable, what would other people have done. It's not someone happens to say, oh, I don't think I would have done this in the same circumstance. It's your lawyer gets to actually look through that person's record and say, Mr. Smith, you say that you would never have done this, but back on the 3rd of July, 1980, you were observed to do this. And so that's the problem is that what's appropriate as a negligence test in a court of law 
is not something that a company has the ability to apply fairly in an accident investigation. Um, and we need to be very careful about like things that do seem to make sense only make sense when you adopt the whole other procedural justice around it. And I think that's right. I think just to be really clear on that point, Drew, because Sydney mentions it over and over again, although it hasn't come up in the preface of at least of the second edition, maybe it's in the in the in the third edition, about those, you know, some of those factors that that are necessary for for justice and obviously independent judge. While the organization's making that decision, whether it's a manager or a safety person or a HR person, they're not independent of the system or the situation. Like you said, there's no jury of jury of peers. So there's no there's no collection of people who can relate to the to the people involved and the actions that they took. And there's very rarely, even though organisations will say that there is very rarely a right of appeal. You know, there might be some show cause process, but um, I don't think there's a genuine right of appeal for individuals. So, you know, without some of those very basic elements of a justice system, it's very hard to argue that your retributive justice processes are sort of just in any way. And the final one about the relationship between punishment and learning. I, I think this is one of those empirically open questions in that we genuinely don't have good data on about how different types of investigation systems and different levels of or types of just culture lead to organisational learning. So people are going to have their own points of view based on their existing understanding of the science and their own ideology. I'm personally already on the record that I think that once you've drawn any conclusions you've already started to close off learning because we learn mainly from uncertainty and we learn from not knowing what happened. Once we think we know what's happened, I think we've closed off a lot of avenues to learning. So I'd actually go stronger than just saying that punishment closes off learning. Yeah, and I think while not specifically about incident investigation, we did address um, blame and learning in an, in an earlier podcast with some of the organisational literature. So we, it, we, I suppose the broader the broader empirical research definitely shows that where there's a fear of some kind of punishment um, or individual consequences, then you know, open communication and learning is definitely um, compromised. And so let's move on a bit, because the big difference from the second to the third edition is the extent to which Decker has outlined his ideas of restorative justice. And he gives a preview of this argument in the preface, and we're going to be going through this in one of our episodes about the book. So in the preview, the fundamental ideas are Number one, listening to and hearing the stories of everyone involved. Now, that's something that we might think that we do anyway in investigation, but the ability of people to tell their stories and have those stories heard by all the other stakeholders is a key part of restorative justice. The second big one is focusing on how people have been hurt and how we need to make them whole again after that hurt. So we change the questions from what mistake was made to who is hurt and what do they need? And we change the question of accountability from who caused the accident to whose obligation is it now to meet the needs of the people who've been hurt? And one of the big parts of that that's going to come up again and again is the idea of a second victim. So we'll talk about this in more detail, but a second victim is someone who has been involved in causing an accident and so is therefore hurt by the circumstances of the accident. So it might be that they feel guilty, it might be that they become ostracised, it may be because the investigation itself costs them their job. All of those are harms to that person. So the idea of restorative justice is that even the second victims have already been hurt by the accident, and the incident investigation process is at risk of hurting them further, and has the possibility of helping to make them whole again. 
Um, and so a lot of Decker's views are strongly influenced by his experiences with second victims who have been treated really badly by the organisations they're in in the wake of an accident and the harms that they've experienced because of that. Decker also in the preface gives a bit of a sort of preemptive rebuttal of the objections to the book. So he says that a lot of the discussion around just culture comes out of the fact that people distrust the system's approach to safety. So this is something that Reason has written a fair bit about. The, the risk that the more you focus on the system, the more you seem to be moving away from focusing on individuals. And that rings very poorly to some people because they think that it means that individuals are getting away with things that they shouldn't get away with. You were saying, you know, you're not at fault, it's the system that it's fault. So we'll let you do what you like. Um, and it also sort of fails to account for the fact that sometimes accidents are just caused by people doing the wrong thing. Sometimes you don't need a complex explanation for the fact that someone should have known better, should have done things differently. They're the one who stuffed up. Why are we talking about all of these systemic factors? And so that's the most common objection to a reforming a just culture process towards more restorative justice, I guess, is this fear that if we move too much towards the system, we lose track of individual failings, we lose track of the ability to fix some of these individual problems. David, I'm really interested both in your opinion of Decker's answer and in your own sort of answer to that objection. So what Decker says is sort of very social science-y, um, almost like structuration theory that I know you've studied. He sort of says that systems are made up of individuals. And so, you know, every system is just lots of individuals. So when you talk about individual actions being constrained and influenced by the system, that doesn't let anyone off the hook. You're still talking about individual actions. You're still talking about individual accountability. You're just not saying, talking about individual blame. You're talking about what individuals need to do, what they should be accountable for moving forwards. Do you think that's fair? And do you have a sort of alternative? Look, I think this is a complex part of social science and one that we won't do justice on now. But one of the central debates in social science is the idea of structure and agency. So how much of an individual action is caused by the structural factors surrounding their action? So think about the context around surrounding their, their action and the norms and the expectations and you know the pressures and the requirements. And then how much of their behavior is a result of individual agency? So, you know, free will, if you like. So this this idea of forced choice and free will. So that isn't really resolved in, in the social sciences, but structuration, which is, um, you know, Giddens work really says that this is a recursive relationship. So people create systems and then systems drive the behaviors of people, which therefore create the systems and therefore create the people. So I think what I, I see this as a very, this individual blaming the individual versus I suppose blaming the system is this same sort of circular discussion. And it's really difficult for organizations to know where to stand because on one hand you can say, how can we improve the system if we don't hold individuals accountable for their actions because they're reinforcing what goes on in the system? And so the other argument would be, well, how can we ever improve if we don't actually fix the system problems that are driving the behaviors? So most organizations, in my experience, end up in some kind of shaky middle ground where they think they're actually doing both. They go, oh, yes, we actually gave this person a warning, but we also change the permit to work process at the same time. So we've, we're fixing the system and we're fixing the people. But kind of in, in, in my experience, unless you make some kind of firm stance to say that actually, yes, maybe we can get some, you know, utility from addressing or correcting the actions of an individual in a particular situation, if that comes at the expense of making any broader organizational systemic action or learning, 
then in the long run, that's not going to be in the best interest of the organization. So I think while you're still trying to make this balance between systemic systemic action and, and individual action, then you're really not actually making any real progress on your on your systemic issues. That's kind of how I've reconciled it in in my mind, Drew. I'm not sure if that answers the question you're after. No, th- thank you, David. I think that is a fair answer. Uh, if you don't mind me sort of throwing in my own opinion there, um, I, th- I think this is close but not quite where Decker is coming from. I am myself an individual and I sit within systems. And when I look at myself, I don't see that as in any way absolving me from any responsibility. All that does is tell me who I should get angry at. When things go wrong, I can see other people who I think might be blameworthy for that or who I think are the mouthpiece for the decisions. But for my own mental health and maintaining relationships and being effective, I need to see that as the system's fault and I need to fight the system. If what I do is get angry at other individuals who are also feeling trapped by the system, we'll just get angry at each other and not achieve anything. And if I then take that sort of view of myself and say, well, everyone else is in that same boat, there's just no point in any of us blaming each other. But that means we're all individually responsible for fixing the system that we're in. And sure, we're accountable for making that system better. And the person we think caused the accident or the person we think was hurt by the accident or the person who was responsible for the safety department or a different site... We're all in the same boat. We all, after that accident, have an individual responsibility to stop this happening again by making the system better. If Unless we somehow think that, you know, blaming a person is the solution that's going to stop the accident happening again, then it's just where do we direct our attention and our efforts? And I think, Drew, I think I'm aligned with that. And we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about restorative just cultures, because I think Sydney's of the view, I think Sydney might be of the view, but I definitely am, which is like, I just don't see the point of, blaming someone for something that's happened in the past because nothing's going to change. All you can worry about is what happens today and what happens tomorrow. So this idea that Sydney would also talk a lot about um, that I'm sure is all through the third edition on restorative cultures is forward accountability. So what happened yesterday or last week kind of happened. All you can do is with the people involved, do whatever you can to understand how it happened and then think about forward accountability. So what are we going to do in the future? How are we going to work in the future? What, what, what extra support do we need to um, you know, manage this situation if it arises in the future? And then people can be held accountable for their future actions you know, uh, you know, that, are, that are clear and, and expected. But there's kind of no point just looking backwards. Um, that'd be how I'd kind of reconcile it in my mind anyway. David, it's not on the show notes, but just before we go on, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you think that there are ever times when someone is such a danger to themselves and others that they need to be removed from the system? as part of the response to an accident. You know, our forward accountability is just to protect this person and other people, we need to get rid of them. So I think there's short answer, probably yes. I think that could be a failure of organizational selection processes and training and development processes. But if you find out you've suddenly got a train driver in your organization that's red, green, colorblind and can't distinguish between certain signals in the rail network, then there's a reason probably for for and you discover that after a signal past a danger or something, then then you're in a real bind about about what you do, um, depending on you know what you what the limits of your ability to to make changes within that system. But I would say that there's they're less likely to be as common and and obvious reasons to to do that. There's some really good examples in the in the third edition of the book of like surgeons who end up you know criminalised over malpractice claims and 
you know, Sydney talks about different case studies about, you know, is it really the individual doctor or is it the system that trains and accredits that doctor to actually do that type of work in that hospital? So I don't know, Drew, I, I, I'm in danger of giving you a very, very, very long answer to what is a short question. But the short answer is there are probably some situations where the individual shouldn't be in the safety critical role that they're in. But a lot of water needs to go under the bridge before you form that, before you do something like that. No, no, thank you for that, David. The, the, the reason I asked you was that that is a common objection I hear to some of Decker's ideas. And I assume from the type of stories that Decker tells and the arguments he makes that he would not come to that position. I don't think I have ever sort of heard him totally willing to say that even someone who seems absolutely heinous from the outside bears a lot of individual responsibility. But I would personally sit about where you would. I would say that I am willing to believe that such people exist, and if they do, that they should be removed from the system. I'm just very wary about designing our organisational processes to deal with that small number of cases instead of optimising it to deal with the vast majority of other cases. And I had this discussion actually with a senior leader in an organisation that was we were trying, you know, we were trying to do some work or doing some work to see how far that that organisation would go with a just culture. I wanted that senior leader, the chief executive, to come out and say that, you know, while I'm the chief executive, no person in this organisation will ever be individually punished for a safety incident in the organisation. You know, learning's most important. We own at least 50% of every action. As at a company level, we own, you know, more than half of, you know, the, every outcome in the organisation, including the action of every individual. And so we're not going to blame you any more than we blame ourselves. But that was the answer that that CEO gave me. But what about the one person that one time that does something that we just absolutely can't let go? And my answer was exactly the same. So you're going to compromise the 99% of other um, learning situations because of that fear that people will think that they're in the 1%. Um, but Drew, I might throw another one at you because since you put me on the spot, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, one that's get, you know, a type of incident that gets tried occasionally in in the courts is you'll have, for example, a an apprentice and their first day on the job that a group of workers, you know, throw the apprentice in a barrel and set them on fire as a bit of an initiation joke on the first day of work. And then every now and then, for example, um, an apprentice will get really badly burnt or really badly injured on one of these sorts of pranks. And the work crew, the actual employees involved, will be in front of the courts for some sort of willful harm being caused. How do you think about that situation in the context of a just culture? Oh, thank you for putting me on the spot with that one. That's a hard one. My immediate thought about that is that that is so close a parallel to the problem of zero tolerance for bullying in schoolyards. Now, I'm not an expert on education. I'm not an expert of on bullying. So if we do have educators, please forgive me for factual mistakes I make. But my big personal concern is that it is really hard for a teacher to come along and know who was the bully and who was the person bullied because it may have been the poor, terrified person who threw the first punch. And a zero-tolerance system is likely at best to exclude both of them from the school and at worst to actively encourage the bullies to provoke other people into getting themselves expelled. And I think that when it comes to the apprentices, we may be in a bit of a similar situation. What happened is inexcusable. What happened should not have happened. There is probably some moral right and wrong in that situation, but our ability to come along and arbitrate the right or wrong with enough certainty that we're willing to impose criminal consequences 
is beyond the capacity of our investigation systems. And the goal should be to make sure that that bullying stops happening, not to make sure that the guilty in this particular case happen to get their precise just desserts. I'm willing for people that I think are morally repugnant to have got away with this act of bullying if it's going to down the line protect the next apprentice from being bullied or being unfairly blamed from what's for what's happened. Yeah, look, I think, Joe, I think I, I'm the same view. It's like one of those things which is like there's, there's conditions in the organisation that that have that sort of practice as a norm, even an expectation or or as an acceptable kind of way of working and and you don't deal with any of those um those social practices by a point in time sort of harsh punishment of one. I mean, maybe you get some short-term behavioural modification, but you probably don't change the system in the long term. So I hope listeners appreciated some of those couple of practical examples because it kind of shows the debates and discussions that you're likely to have if you start to try to talk about moving towards a, a more just culture. These Some of these are the types of uh, things that managers will say, but what about this situation or what about that situation? So um, if you've got any other situations that you'd like us to throw a an opinion around on and, and also canvas crowdsource some opinions on, on on LinkedIn. Just throw your throw your situation up on the LinkedIn comments to these episodes and we'll see if other listeners want to uh weigh in. So David, I'm certainly going to enjoy the next couple of episodes if this is the way it's going to go. And I really do hope that people based on when we're recording this, we will have a chance to respond to people's comments on LinkedIn in the episodes uh, before we finish the set. We're recording this on a Wednesday. It's going to go up on the Monday. And I reckon it'll be the next Wednesday before we get the next chapter recorded at our current rate. So do feel free to drop some comments in, throw us some curly ones. Basically, the framework for our discussion, if you're reading along, is going to follow the third edition of the book. It has five main chapters. Chapter one is about retributive and restorative just cultures. Uh, Chapter two, why do people break rules? Chapter three is about safety reporting and honest disclosure. Chapter four is about the criminalization of human error. And chapter five is a sort of looking forward one. What's the right thing to do? So we're going to break those roughly in half. We're not quite sure where the exact division in half point is going to be. And we're also not quite sure who gets to draw the line, <laughs> whether it's you whether it's you or me. <laughs> so uh, Very meta. David, do you have some practical takeaways from the episode? Yeah, I do. And, and I think we want to talk about these couple of things because there's a lot of talk about, um, about you know, open cultures, psychological safety and just cultures. And and I think it is really important to our efforts in in safety and organisations. So hopefully, hopefully you find this useful. But we also want to be practical on the way through and also evidence based where we where we're going to pull in, you know, not just not just we've talked about the differences between books and peer reviewed journal articles before. So we'll we'll pull in the um the empirical findings along the way. But there were, I do want to mention some practical takeaways, even if it's just from the preface of of this book that a just culture, at least in the way that um, Sidney Decker's books talk about them, is not about having a model or a process where you determine if individuals are culpable or not. It's actually about having a broader or working towards a broader culture of trust and learning and accountability. Would also Sidney would also argue that in just cultures, you do not apply retributive justice um, in, in sort of almost, I think Sidney, Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, but would argue in any way, shape or form, it serves no, no useful purpose. David, I'm going to give a slight contradiction there. Um, I think this is something new to the third edition, is that Sid actually says that he thinks that most people are probably going to pick some sort of compromise between the two of them, recognising that full restorative justice may not be practical to implement in your organisation. And he basically says, don't be dogmatic, that part of having a just culture is recognising that 
what looks like justice to one person is not justice to another. And that we need to have these open discussions as part of a just culture of recognizing that we may have different ideas about what is just, what is needed for justice, or about the justice of any particular action or any how any particular incident was handled. And that having open discussions about it and recognizing that we have different stories to tell about justice itself is part of a just culture. So practical opportunity just on the spot there, number one, is who in your in your organization do you give the workers involved in in an incident a chance to do the final review and sign off of your incident investigation reports because that's the story that the organization is putting on the table and you know how close is it to the story that the people involved you know believe should be told so hopefully we can give some really practical examples like that on the way through and create some questions in in the minds of yourselves as listeners so drew just cultures ask what went wrong rather than who caused it so i think that's a good question to ask and then I took out some challenges as I went through the the preface. I sort of said, you know, where where were some of the bigger the bigger challenging ideas in there? So I want to list sort of four things, Drew, and get your thoughts just before we wrap up. So some of the challenges that you'll have to solve in progressing a just culture in your organisation, which is questions like how do you navigate the societal expectation to ex- assign blame for accidents? It's everywhere in 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 all societies around the world. How are you going to get people to report and disclose openly? How are you going to take care of the individuals who are involved in the accidents and, and may already be be hurt, either emotionally or physically in, in some way? And how are you going to reconcile the multiple and overlapping interpretations of the same act, the same event in the organization by, by different people with different perspectives? So, David, I'll put an overarching challenge there is that how do you do all of these things in the spirit of listening to and recognizing the opinions of everyone? Knowing that some of those opinions are going to be much less restorative and open to not blaming as you are. How do you respectively include the person who thinks that individuals should be blamed? How do you respectively listen and hear the story of someone who is telling a story where it's someone else's fault? So please join in the discussion on, on LinkedIn. Like like Drew mentioned earlier, throw us some curly ones. We're, we're recording these episodes in, in real time. So if you want us to explain any particular points in the book, if you've read it, um, in the next five chapters or so. If you want us to throw around some ideas, we can respond to some ideas on the podcast. You may as well take advantage of us being really, really behind in um, in getting in front of the recording process and, um, and sort of challenge us a bit sort of uh, um, in real time. So that's it for this week. We hope you found the episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Easiest way to reach us is to comment on LinkedIn or talk to us directly by sending comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 